Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Friday. You may be listening to this over the weekend, which means that you will know a good deal more than we know about what is going on with Ukraine. Uh, so we are very, very fortunate uh, to have David Frum back on the podcast to explain what the hell is happening with Russia and Ukraine and what's going on with Canada. So first of all, happy Friday, David. Hey, thank you. So let's start with Canada. What's yeah, going I on with, yeah. I, that I know a, a little bit more. I, I speak the language for one thing. This is, I, this I, is I, I speak the language. I speak Canadian. Well, you know, it was a strange moment where there was kind of the the confluence of would it be South Park and Tucker Carlson when he when he started warning against the dangers of Canadian tyranny. Yes, I mean we well, we I, did not we didn't see that coming. Well, I hope I remember this forthcoming anecdote correctly. So, it, it, about 1984, when Brian Mulroney was the newly elected Prime Minister of Canada, he made a trip to New York for UN or economic forums or something like that, and he was booked onto the Today Show. And he said with some exasperation to the Today Show, um, Canada, America's largest trading partner, most intimate ally, what do we have to do to get a little attention up here? And unfortunately, <laughs> you kn he didn't know he had it good. Okay, uh, well, now we know what you have to do to get a little attention up there. <laughs> well, okay, so explain a couple of things that are not completely clear to me. Um, why yeah. Canada? Why is this happening in Canada? As opposed to, I don't know, Alabama, Arkansas, Virginia. What, what, what's going on? What's the dynamic? The dynamic, and this is the thing that gives some public sympathy inside Canada to some of the things these blockaders are trying to do, is that Canada, it's a very law-abiding country. It's a very compliant country. And Canadians showed incredible public spirit during the early parts of the COVID crisis. I spent the summers of both 2020 and 2021 in a fairly rural part of Canada. Um, and, and people, people closed their shops. They took economic sacrifices. Uh, they wore masks. They signed up for vaccinations. Um, they did all the right things. And, and they thought that they were in line to collect the rewards for those right things as the, the virus receded. Um, then Omicron struck. And I, I think it's fair to say that Canadian provincial governments, the provinces are very powerful in Canada, especially the province of Ontario, overreacted and impose a new set of lockdowns and a new set of closures. And those bore very hard on smaller businesses, independent businesses. Um, um, and there was a reaction. And, and that's why when you ask Canadians, when early in the truck blockade crisis, Canadians were asked, do you have sympathy for the aims of the blockaders? About a third of the country expressed some kind of sympathy for the aims of the blockaders. Many people felt things had, had the governments had just overreacted, and by February it was it was becoming more evident how that that the overreaction had been unnecessary and destructive, and so there was a lot of fatigue and a demand, mm -hmm. and and I think that's that's all pretty understandable. There's another part of the story that is relevant to understanding what, what's going on here, which is Canada by and large has avoided culture wars, not completely, but nothing like the United States, and that's a function. I think of a, a, a middle class that has been stronger and healthier than the American middle class. It's, it's been a function of, of uh, an immigration process that has led to better integration. Canada takes more immigrants than the United States, but they come from many more different places. And so you don't create these subcultures the way you do in the United States. They, the immigrants really fuse into, into the country. And they are very economically successful. Uh, and I think many Canadians, especially if you live in a more rural place, you know the only reason you have medical services at all in your rural place is because an immigrant has replaced uh, an immigrant or the son of an immigrant or the daughter of an immigrant has replaced the medical practice that would have closed 
but for the immigration. So immigration is pretty well accepted in Canada. Uh, so Canada avoided it, but there, there have been pressures on culture wars, and especially since 2020, there have been a series of protests by indigenous groups, by left-wing environmental groups that have used the methods of blockade mm, to make their point. Okay. They've shut down pipelines, they've occupied mm -hmm. rail lines, they've closed highways. And uh, I, I don't want to suggest a direct one-to-one -one link between what these kinds of protesters did and uh, what the truck blockaders did. But it's not crazy that conservative-leaning Canadians thought, wait a minute, there seems to be a different set of laws here for one set of violations of the rules and for another set of violations of the rules. And so why don't we use this permission that there seems to be to hmm. close bridges, to close roads? I mean, if other people can close railways and, and, and shut down highways with armed intimidation, why can't we close the Ambassador Bridge? So what's the reaction to the, the blockade been in terms of public opinion? My, my sense is that the polls have shown that while there may have been initial sympathy, that the vast majority of Canadians are really, really sick of the, of the truck blockades. Yeah. Well, you, okay. um, with polls, as, as you know well, you always have to be very careful to listen to exactly the question right. that has been asked because yes. people don't always hear the question the way the pollster imagines or that the reader of the poll imagines. But the, the latest polls show actually a pretty judicious reaction. Canadians expressed early on some sympathy for the general aims of the, of the protesters. Uh, they have never liked the methods and they have turned harsher and harsher against the methods. And the mo most recent poll shows about two thirds of Canadians say the police should end the truck blo blockade protest by any means, mm. even if people are hurt, mm. even if people are, that okay. was in the question, even if people are hurt and about two thirds of Canadians said yes. However, their lack of sympathy for the blockade is not translating into a rally around the flag effect for Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, because Canadians react to him and say, look, it was your job to deal with this. And, and you, you look weak for the, the long time. And the reason you're having to use these draconian methods now was because you didn't use less draconian methods early. Um, and, and so he, uh, he's got a very low job approval rating, about 50, a majority of Canadians mm -hmm. say they are not happy with the way politicians have ha handled the protests. So, and th that's not a kind of throwing their hands up in the air. I think it's a pretty reasoned assessment that the protests got as out of hand as they did, uh, because of the weakness of law enforcement. And that weakness of law enforcement has been learned over a couple of years of dealing with similar kinds of protests from indigenous groups, where again, the law enforcement was weak when it should have been strong. We also want to make it clear that the truck blockades are a rogue movement within among truckers. I mean, it's been condemned by the Canadian Truckee Alliance, the you know Canada's Teamsters Union, yeah. and apparently what something like 90% of Canadian truck drivers are in fact vaccinated. Right. Uh, and comparatively few of the people who are protesting are actually professional truck drivers? Yeah, I call it a truck protest or a truck blockade um, because th these are not professional truckers. Um, and the yeah, trucks that were point. in particular that were used at the Ambassador Bridge, and that's the crossing between Windsor and Detroit. It's the most crossed U.S.-Canadian border crossing. Two other, one in Alberta and I think one in Manitoba were also. And, and the vehicles used to impede those were pickup trucks. They were not big rigs. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's become a kind of... Um, jet more generalized movement of protest. And look, Canadians, by and large, they accepted masking, they accepted vaccines, they accept vaccine mandates, but people want closure and, and they don't want, and I think this is a message for all politicians, what did Edmund Burke say? The, the individual is foolish, the species is wise. The species understands the goal here can't be zero risk. Um, once we have reduced risk to a bearable level, uh, then we have to return to a normal life. 
I think that's where the consensus here is. Well, now you've talked about this as a sign of the memification of politics. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Because it does seem that we we have exported something from our country to yours. Uh, I, I think it's a it's a global. This is a global movement. Um, here, here you see these things. I'll I'll give you an example. Democrats uh, in the United States in uh, 2020 rallied around the demand for a minimum wage of $15 an hour. Never mind whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. It became a big sign-off as to whether you were a Democrat, a progressive Democrat. The left wing in the Britain, within days, the left wing of the Labour Party takes up a demand for minimum wage of 15 pounds an hour. (laughs) Now, pound is worth about a buck and a half, right? Or a buck 30. So $15 is not 15 pounds. Anyway, wages are higher in the United States than the United Kingdom. So it's it's completely preposterous. So what happened? Well, they saw progressive means 15 of whatever the local money is. Our local money is the pound. We're progressives, therefore 15. And so what you have is these kinds of things that that are slogans, that are memes, that are not meant even in the American context, to be taken seriously, and and they translate. Or during the BLM protests of the summer of 2020, one of the the actions of the protesters was to topple statues. Suddenly, all over uh, the United Kingdom and Europe and Canada, people are toppling statues. Hmm. In cultures, now in the United States, um, there is a, for better or worse, lively culture of vigilante violence. (laughs) We're violently toppling a statue. I mean, whatever else you say about it, at least it's an expre- an authentic expression of the American way. But the first thing the revolutionaries do in New York in 1776 is topple the statue of George III that used to stand in, in Battery Park. Britain, Canada, the others don't have those violent vigilante traditions, and yet they copy the American. And so what, I think this is a function of social media exporting things. And what was so strange about the Ottawa protests is people kept doing things that were and it's hard to express this, but it's, I, mm-hmm. I only live part-time in Canada now, but they, they just felt unconnected. There's a scene mm-hmm. in the streets of Ottawa where two men got on horseback and they carried flags and one said Trump 2024. <laughs> Trump is very, very unpopular in Canada. But what is even weirder about that is – I'm going to generalize a little bit. But as a Canadian, when you see a man on horseback carrying a flag, you think not anti-state but mounting. That, mm-hmm. that, that's an action. The man on the horseback carrying a flag, that is what the Royal Canadian Mounted Police do. It's a symbol of the authority of the state. And to convert it into a symbol of protest against the state, there's something about it. It's just not the, the native language. It, it is an imported language. So the other meme that we're experiencing is, you know, as part of our addiction to rhetorical hyperbole is that that everyone is Hitler and there's a lot of comparisons of Justin Trudeau to, to Hitler, um, Elon Musk, tweeted yeah. out uh, something that, uh, and again, was slapped down by the Auschwitz Memorial for it. Uh, and you, you probably heard this soundbite from uh, Charlie Kirk from TPUSA, who is comparing vaccine requirements at your local bakery to Nazi Germany. Let me just play like a 30-second like a clip from, from Charlie Kirk. And, and look, they were being nice enough. They were being very compliant Stasi members of the regime, right? They would have been... Again, I never want to hear again, like, how could the atrocities of Germany happen? Like, go go to Corner Bakery, all right? You'll see. Seriously. Show me your papers. Like, what? Like, I want a panini. Like, this is weird. Show me your papers. Yeah, the murder of six million Jews. Really, the, the exact same thing as not being able to get your panini in your pumpkin spice latte. Yeah, well, so, look, David there's Trump. a... There's a long and lively tradition of comic exaggeration 
about Nazism. Think of Seinfeld's mm-hmm. Soup Nazi. Uh, think of Mel Brooks' Hitler on Ice. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that was a way that modern societies have sort of coped with this terrible trauma. Is you you turn things into in, into true jokes. You know, jokes are jokes. What is alarming about some of the vaccine protests is they're actually using this. And Charlie Kirk was there walking the line in a way that Elon right. Musk, with his comparison of, of Justin Trudeau to Hitler, was not. Of of comedy, of of, of Mel Brooks like comedy, not obviously as clever, to making a serious point. And it's when you make the serious point that I think the hackles rise. So I I don't think anyone should get haughty about the soup Nazi joke. Obviously, yeah. someone who sells you soup is not like, a, not, yeah. and no, that's not meant to be taken seriously. But that people do want it taken seriously. There is some comparison between showing a vax paper during a time of epidemic and persecution. And it's so whiny. You know, I just, I, I, I went to West Africa in the fall for the first time in my life. And, and I had to show my yellow fever certificate mm-hmm. when I entered the country. You know, when you went to school, people don't remember this now. You had to show all kinds of um, uh, vaccination papers. That, that's not oppression. That's science and progress. It's the reason why we don't have, you know, 30% infant mortality rates the way they did a hundred years ago. Um, and, uh, and the idea that ever being asked to show a paper, um, you know, Charlie Kirk wants people to show a paper to vote. Uh, you certainly have to show a paper if you want to enter a casino or a nightclub. Um, you know, you have to prove that you're of, of, of age. Uh, we, we all carry papers around with us, all have driver's licenses. Um, driving is essential. You have to show a paper in order to drive. It doesn't make it a, an authoritarian state because there's public authority. Um, now, the, the good news, I, t- I tweeted this the other day, is I think it shows what an incredibly comfortable and successful and stable hmm. society it is that people can, can have these complaints. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is your you know, problem. Yeah, they invented uh, an ultra sophisticated, life saving vaccine and got it to market in less than in a, in a year and a little bit. And I don't like how they're doing it. It's so great living in the twenty first century. We have just experienced this amazing medical miracle, and this is our take on. So I want to approach this from a slightly different point of view. That you know, everybody is Hitler that you don't like, and the Nazi, etc. It's like people need to read another book. Yeah. I mean, I, I, Matty Glazy's made a good point. We need a national initiative to teach Americans about literally any historical event other than World War II. Because, okay, can we just like mix up the metaphors a little bit? How come people are not saying this is like Mao? This is like Paul Pot. Yeah. This is like the Alien and Sedition Act. Or have you ever heard what the Stuarts did in England yeah. or Juan Perón? Why, you know, could, do we have any other ethical, moral, measurement other than World War II. It's either a good thing or it's Auschwitz. Could we have yeah. a little bit more nuance? Could we have a little bit, just something else? Just, yeah, lot, is there any of, other I, historical reference we could use? Yeah, I, I, line I've been using again and again, I published it in, in my Trump book in 2018, is there are a lot of stops on the train line of bad before you get to Hitler <laughs> yes, station. But, but here's something that also needs to be said. And I think this is one of the reasons why some of the Trumpy types like to throw out Hitler analogies to everything. That if you understand that as there were many varieties of socialism and communism, so there are many varieties of fascism. Mm-hmm. Um, and and fascism has precursors dating back to the time before the First World War, and it has it and and it continues in many places afterwards. And the National Socialist Movement was the most extreme and genocidal and murderous and aggressive form of this, the most virulent form, but there are other forms too. And so I think because there are so many places where the Trump movement overlaps with some elements of historical fascism, 
in a well-informed, not everything is Hitler way, but some things do remind you of Juan Perón, that it's a kind of prophylactic that, you know, we're going to compare everything to Hitler because actually there, there are points here where what we are doing in our valorization of political violence, in our condemnation of our society as depraved and degenerate, and that it, you need some kind of national revolution mm -hmm. to rejuvenate the society. Those are themes that I think political conservatives understand this. When people talk about social justice, that we all recognize that there, there are elements of that that are valid. There are elements of it that you think are excessive. There are elements where you think that begins to be dangerous. There are elements where you think that's becoming really quite dangerous. And then there are elements where that's full-blown dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and and we, we can draw those distinctions. And we can also, we can also understand that not everything is Stalin, obviously, but uh, and not every mental ingredient that went into the making of Stalinism was murderous, and not even every ingredient was evil. But having seen a kind of wreck, you want to tiptoe away from the vicinity of the wreck. And, and so it is with, with mid-century fascism. And when, when you have people storming the national legislature in an effort to overthrow a legally valid presidential election... I mean, I, I've, I've been dealing with this over the past two days because I, I've written about ways in which the Trump movement draws on the legacy of historical mid-century fascism in from many, many different places, mm -hmm. not only Germany. And then when I object to Elon Musk comparing Justin Trudeau to Hitler, people say, aha, well, you, because you have referenced fascism accurately and historically in some places, you are not supposed to then decry this crazy, insulting, whiny, borderline anti-Semitic response to a vaccine requirement. Yeah, that, that that requires a certain degree of sophistication in the understanding of politics. I think a lot of us have experienced that sort of, you know, what what does this sound like? What is the political tradition? Why is it such a departure? So speaking, of you you mentioned Stalin, which is is going to be my very very poor man's way of segueing into what's going on with Russia. We're recording this on Friday morning. We don't know exactly whether there is an invasion. So give me your sense of Vladimir Putin's thinking. The entire Western world is trying to deter his aggression. And at the moment, it certainly looks, well, give me your take on this. I mean, it, it's, it certainly looks like that deterrence may fail. What do you think? Well, I'm going to be very careful because unlike yeah, Canadian politics, I am, uh, I can very easily overstep my, very easily overstep my expertise here. And I, I have no idea what goes on inside the black box of, of Putin's yeah. thinking. And I, I've, I've been to Ukraine Fair a few point. times, but I'm, I'm no kind of expert on, on that country either. But I think what we can uh, see is the response in the Western world. Um, and uh, we have, uh, a lot of it has been very impressive. The part of the story that I am most interested in is one of the reasons that Putin can even think about this. Con or contemplate this form of aggression is because of the way that the continent of, of the Western part of Europe has gotten into a state of energy dependence on mm -hmm. Russia. And, and this really is something that must be corrected. And it has many authors, it has many causes, but it is an enormous vulnerability and it can be corrected. It can't be corrected fast, but it can be corrected. So Europe uses gas above all as a heating fuel. So it's, it's hard to substitute. I mean, there it was bad that Germany wound down its nuclear plants, but it is hard to substitute electricity for gas in Europe because you'd have to reconfigure. It's not just swapping the nuclear for the gas. You actually have to swap out the furnace in the apartment yeah. building from a gas furnace to a kind of electrical heat distribution unit. And while that can be done, that takes a long time. There are a lot of dwellings in Western Europe. But 
as Europe moves toward a different kind of energy future, one of the things that can play a huge role is American liquefied natural gas. America and Canada too are the places in the world that have the best ability to rapidly increase their production of, of gas uh, and to export it. But to export it requires special kinds of facilities because obviously you can't build a pipeline across the Atlantic. You have to put it into mm -hmm. a vessel and that requires on this side of the ocean, big facilities to compress the gas into liquid form, and on their side of the ocean, less sophisticated facilities to decompress the gas. But we can do it, and it will buy a lot of energy security. And it can also be an important part of the something I've been advocating for a long time, and I, I know interests you, the, the transition to a lower carbon economy. Because one of the reasons we haven't done this is there are people who say, well, gas, even though gas emits a lot less carbon per unit of energy than coal, it still emits more than zero. So gas is bad, but gas is it's better than coal. And from a security point of view, it's better than Russian gas. So let's produce it here and let's sell it as we make our way to what we hope is the zero carbon future based on nuclear power and renewables. So in, in, in the calculations that Vladimir Putin is making in that black box though, is he believing, do you think that he's assuming that uh, the West is bluffing when it says that it's not going to continue to be dependent on the natural gas, that he figures he can invade Ukraine, he can set up a puppet government, and then we'll go back to normal and the pipeline will still run and it will be yet another cave-in? I mean, is, is, this, is this Vladimir Putin, the poker player, just sort of assuming that the West is bluffing, do you think? What I can say is that he's been building the pieces for this aggression for a while. Uh, and again, this, the gas market tells us what's going on. The pipelines don't carry enough gas that you can warm Europe in December with the gas carried through the pipeline. So what Europe does is it imports gas in the warm months, stores it in giant underground salt caves and other kinds of facilities, it stores it through the summer, and then draws down the, those inventories in the cold months. The Russians began slowing their exports of gas to Europe in the spring and began quite dramatically slowing their exports of gas to Europe in the summer. Mm. Uh, and that meant that Europe entered the fall with the lowest stockpiles in, in many, many years, maybe maybe ever. And the price went crazy. If you, were, if you follow this, gas futures in Europe, and gas, unlike oil, is not a global market. It's very regional because of the pipeline capacity. So there are times in October and November when gas in Europe was selling for 10 times what it was selling for in North America. So I think that if Putin's a poker player, he began playing or drawing and playing cards as far back as April and really playing the game very intensely beginning in the summer. And once again, as you and I are recording this, we do not know what's, what's happening. There are the reports of shelling going on. But again, uh, we're also entering the fog of disinformation about the war, so we need to be very, very cautious about all of the assumptions. So let, let's switch to uh, domestic politics. Uh, the uh, Kevin McCarthy announcing yesterday that he's endorsing the uh, Republican primary opponent to Liz Cheney. I, I don't think this tells us anything about Kevin McCarthy. We did not know. But it's rather extraordinary and unprecedented for the leader um, of, of, of a party to endorse a primary challenge against one of his members. So uh, this also comes at the same time that we we learn, at least through Politico, that, that Donald Trump is pushing uh, officials in Wyoming to change the law in Wyoming to block Democratic and independent voters from crossing over and voting in a Republican primary, presumably for Liz Cheney. In other words, shutting off, you know, maybe one of the few exits for ways that uh, Liz Cheney can save herself in a Republican primary. So talk to me about this ongoing obsession with purging Liz Cheney. I mean, it is remarkable all of the steps they have taken to, to, to quash this woman. And at least to date, it has had no success whatsoever in shutting her up. 
and it's resulted in a series of rather embarrassing face plants. So give me your take on on, on Kevin McCarthy's latest move. Well, it, among the face plants has been that the Mitch McConnell in the Senate has been prodded into speaking up on behalf of Liz Cheney. Yes. And so one of the things, there's now this embarrassing split between the leadership of the Republicans in the House and the Senate as to what they think of, of these Trump a- efforts to remake the party to justify his violent attack on Congress. Um, uh, that that said, I think it puts us all in this, you know, uncomfortable position. Those of us who have, who have tried to keep some kind of connection to the Republican Party as it was, the Republican Party as we hope it will be again. I don't know where, where you fit into that these days. That's still where where I de- identify. I'd like, you know, I look forward to being a Republican again. I'm proud of having been a Republican in the past, um, mm. and I'm I'm sort I'm of. Done. On sus- oh, you're done. I, I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm sort of in abeyance right now. But but if it really becomes true that the thing that defines a Republican is whether you're in favor of overthrowing the government, yeah, <laughs> problem. Not not in favor not in favor of overthrowing the Canadian government. Not in favor of overthrowing the American government. Uh, from time to time, you have to vote the bums out for sure. And and sometimes I like the bums, and they still get voted out. But voting the bums out is is a different thing from invading Congress and trying to kill them. Um, and if that's the test, who wants any part of that? Apparently, so not, apparently some of us do, unfortunately, but uh, not apparently me. Apparently do. And yeah, and, and uh, I don't know whether you saw that this morning, Mike Pence apparently gave a speech in Stanford where he defended the Republican National Committee's uh, resolution saying that we complete misunderstanding about the legitimate uh, political discourse. That referred to the fake fraudulent electors, not the people who committed the yeah. violence. So, so the Mike Pence member of the resistance lasted for what, a week? Well, so, uh, 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 you quoted Matt Iglesias a few minutes ago, yeah. and Matt Iglesias recently published a piece called In Defense of the Slate Pitch. And yes. those p- people who don't remember, so Slate is this online magazine, and they were famous for their sometimes clever, sometimes silly, contrary takes on everything. But I, I really do think the ultimate Slate Pitch is In Defense of Hanging Mike Pence by Mike Pence. <laughs> by Mike Pence. Yeah. <laughs> that is so like, that's the apotheosis of the slate pitch. Is that, you know, there are a lot of petty-minded naysayers who don't see this in context, but I, Mike Pence, think there are some good arguments in favor of hanging me, Mike Pence. <laughs> well, you know, there's an interesting um, development. I, I think it's a, a piece by David Siders in Politico that talks about the Republican season of self-hate and how vicious these primary fights are, how you know, partially ideological, a lot of it is personal, but uh, also the radicalization of these primaries, which I'm seeing here in the state of Wisconsin, where all of the energy in Republican primaries is increasingly flowing to the people who are obsessed with overturning the election. So here in Wisconsin, there's a real civil war between the Republican base, which is furious at the quote unquote establishment for not actually overturning the 2020 election. And this is the assumption I think that a lot of Republicans are making that you need to go along with stuff like this or pretend to because that's what the primary electorate wants. In contrast, in San Francisco, Democrats turned against their far left, uh, as as they have done in other places around the country. There was kind of an interesting asymmetry. I mean, I, 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 yeah. I think San Francisco has some warnings for the Democrats nationally, but at least it's legitimate to point out that there, they were willing to turn against their extremists while the Republicans are afraid to stand up against theirs. What are your thoughts yes. about that? Well, yeah, well, I think so, something you said in the question 
sort of points to an underlying thing that is different on the Republican side is a lot of the Republican candidates for office who are speaking of overturning the election don't mean it and actually prefer Liz Cheney to Donald Trump. And the most intense voters smell the fraudulence of their candidates. So you get these primary fights where the question is not extremist versus moderate. The question is phony versus authentic. Hmm. You're pretending to be in favor of overthrowing the election, but you're not really prepared to do anything about it. And the candidate is saying, yeah, well, I'm, I'm prepared to mouth some words, but no, I'm not prepared to do anything about it. And then those most impassioned voters say, well, we want to find the real thing. Uh, that's the story of the Ohio Senate race is it's um, part of the comedy. I wrote about this for the Atlantic. Yeah, I know. Part of the comedy of the Atlantic Senate races. Um, there's this whole collection of phonies, each striving to look authentic by becoming ever more virulent. But the phoniness- By which, uh, by, by which case they, they look more phony. The more they, they try, right? Yeah. They look more phony. And so some, someone like Jane Timken, uh, who's running for the Republican nomination. So the, Timken is one of the uh, most hallowed names in, in Ohio business. It's a big steel company. Uh, she, uh, Jane Timken had married into the Timken family, but um, she her, um, she uh, is a Harvard-educated lawyer. She was a big supporter of John Kasich uh, in 2016. She was a past chairman of the of the chairwoman of the Ohio Republican Party. An uncle-in-law of hers served as ambassador to Germany under George W. Bush. I mean, she's this is normal. This is the deep yeah. Republican establishment, and she's now pretending to be, you know, in favor of overthrowing elections. And really, uh, people are going to see through that. And then, then there's you know our friend J.D. Vance, uh, you know, Yale-educated man of the world, author of a memoir that was adapted into a Hollywood movie, someone, you know, we all knew in Washington, someone who was on record again and again, who wrote for The Atlantic about his horror of Donald Trump in 2016. Again, pretending. But Josh Mandel, also a pretender. I mean, the, none of these people are real. Now, sometimes you contort your face in such a way that you can never uncontort it, and maybe that's happened to Josh Mandel. But in other cases, people sense that line from the importance of being earnest. I, I hope you're not merely pretending to be wicked while being secretly good. That would be hypocrisy. <laughs> I just, I, you know, maybe it's not the most important question, but I just keep wondering what becomes of J.D. Vance. Let's say that he gets 10% of the vote. He's, you know, defeated, having completely contorted himself into this caricature of himself. What is the next act? having engaged in this ritual of complete self-humiliation because he can't go back to that life that he used to have, can he? Well, or, I, I, or I, you know, does everybody have no memory? What, what happens to somebody like him? I don't know what happens, but here's – let me talk about a different path. And this is maybe an example of how memification has driven politics crazy. Here's a different past that you can imagine for him, which is having sold his book to the movies and having seen this well-regarded movie made, you then return home, set up your own business, not reliant on Peter Thiel's money, but you go make your own money in a way that doesn't depend on the favor of some eccentric billionaire. Uh, you become a pillar of the community. You support good causes. You become active in your church. And then you mm -hmm. uh, run for state attorney general. And then you run for governor. And then you, you have your own independent base. You're not dependent on people. So when you run for U.S. Senate, that people know you and like you and appreciate what you've done for their community and the state. And so when national figures come along and say, blah, 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 you can sort of, yeah, yeah maybe I agree, maybe I don't. But, but the reason you should vote for me is because you remember when the gym at the high school burned down, I was there. And then we got that gym rebuilt in 18 months. 
and uh, and you know, go Badgers onto onto the county onto the county championship. Well, that's the way I, politics used to be, right? That you would actually do something and accomplish something, and then what you would run as opposed to running and putting, you know, a bunch of shit posts out there and, and getting the, yeah. the base ginned up. So you, you think you can actually go back to that old model of, of actually having a record and being an admirable citizen, because that doesn't seem to be working anymore. I don't, I mean, there's, there's a famous saying, all politics is local. And that then a political scientist a decade ago wrote a paper called all politics is national and which yeah. the scientist traced how, you know, county commissioner races are being now fought on national issues. So, so maybe you can't go back, but I do know this, if you have a local base, it's, uh, you're a lot stronger. Um, Phil Graham used to say this, he was a Senator from Texas, that you can't be any stronger in in Washington than you are at home. Mm -hmm. And so when you have these candidates who are wholly beholden to the favor of, of weirdo donors, or national operations, or Fox News, or Donald Trump, they have no strength at home, and therefore they have no strength in the country. And they have no independence, no ability to be independent then. So other things to keep our eye on, um, other than obviously the possibility of a geopolitical conflict, the ongoing crisis in in Canada, you've been keeping an eye on the markets, right? What's been going on with the markets, and including... What is going on with Facebook? The, 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 give me your thoughts on that. Because that's that seemed to have kind of gotten a little bit lost in all of this. Like, wait, wait, wait. Facebook yeah. is imploding. This seems to be like a thing. Yeah. Well, Facebook, it's such a fascinating story. And a reminder of how, when we start seeing a social evil, how society and markets do offer some correction sometimes. And you don't, sometimes you can just government doesn't have to act. It can just, just wait. So as I understand it, Facebook is, is the victim of, of two trends. The first is, as it has become an arena for older person madness, it has become repulsive to younger people who are the people advertisers most want to talk to. You think about you, you and me. I mean, we, we have purchasing power, yes, but what would it take to make us change our brand of toothpaste? Pretty yeah. much yeah. an earthquake. Yeah. Um, so no, no advertiser is going to talk to us, not because we can't afford to change toothpaste, but because we're just too darn set in our ways to do it. But a 23-year-old is has has not made the toothpaste commitment of a lifetime. It's worth talking to the 23-year-old. Right. Um, and the 23-year-olds have decided, and, and the, even more, the 13-year-olds have decided that Facebook is the uncoolest thing ever. And and so when you're making your projections about market growth, you say, well, the 13-year-olds in California don't like it. That means the 23-year-olds soon won't like it, and the 33-year-olds won't like it. And five years from now, the 13-year-olds in you know, the less developed world won't like it, and, and the future is darkening. But the second thing that is happening is Facebook, as, as everybody transitions from computers to, to phones, is the major way of interacting with the world. And because Apple produces the, the most powerful and most desired of all the phones, when Apple began making it difficult for Facebook to install tracking mechanisms on Apple phones, mm-hmm. that threatened the value of Facebook advertising. And so what we're seeing here is the product of an Apple-Facebook fight, where Apple's saying, we're prepared to sacrifice some of our own revenues to protect the integrity of our product and to assure our customers of greater privacy. And that threatens the Facebook model. And that seems to be a big part of what is driving down the, the, the price. And the stock, the price of Facebook has dropped, the stock price has dropped by what, 45% over the past couple of months. So, but what takes its place? What does the marketplace embrace? What do 13 year olds think is cool? And why do we think it won't be even worse? i I think i think what i should always say it'll just be different i mean it may be worse in in a lot of the times you say okay am i 
It could always get but, worse. <laughs> it could also always get better. It's just, it's more, yeah. am I ready for new problems? And I think having experienced yeah. Facebook, I think we're already, we're ready for the next problem, whatever it, it should be. I, I don't know. Um, the fact that I've heard of TikTok means that it's not TikTok. It's already too late. It's already too, it's already un, it's already uncool if we're talking about it, right? If, if I know it, it's not the next thing. That's for sure. But here's a, here's the way I, th- I think about it. So in the Middle Ages, Arab scientists figured out how to distill wine into a stronger form of alcohol, as the al prefix indicates. Alcohol is an Arabic word, and the Arabs who've invented the distillation of of alcohol used it for. Science, for alchemy, another Arabic word, for experiments. But sometime around the year 1300, somebody in Sicily said, this stuff that the Arab scientists are using for alchemical experiments, what would happen if you drank it? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Whoa. Yeah, <laughs> and they invent grappa. And then grappa then spreads through Europe. Distilled liquors are a product of you know the post-Black Death era. And it is like the introduction of crack. I mean, humanity has evolved over thousands and tens of thousands of years to cope with fermented beverages, uh, beer and wine, but distilled beverages hit humanity in a way that, uh, and you know, those Hogarth Gin Lane posters, I mean, it is just a trauma and it takes us a while to figure out how do we cope with distilled liquor? And we're still having, yeah, we're still having figured it out. No, but we're better. In Wisconsin we have, but I don't know. (laughs) We're better. I mean, there there is less alcoholism, certainly in the United States than there used to be. And, And we did come up with ways of, of both, by law and by custom, um, reg- you, you don't drink it for breakfast, okay? That's one of the things we've all learned. Well, so- <laughs> <laughs> okay. But for the sake of argument, let's say that would be a bad thing. <laughs> um, and when I observe very young people, they do seem to have a healthier attitude towards social media than those wait, people. Wait, wait, wait. Hit- you, you glossed over the, and then there was alcohol. And then of course we discovered heroin and oxy right. and pot and mescaline. So it's not yeah. necessarily a trajectory of improvement. No, but there's a trajectory of, of learning. Of, uh, okay. and, the, and these other things are even, okay. uh, these man-made drugs, of course, are even newer than alcohol. But I, I do notice that if you talk to today's 13-year-olds, they seem, first, they, they certainly have a better ability to d- detect fraudulent stories from true stories than today's 60-somethings. It is, it is people to, who are introduced to Facebook in adult life who have the most trouble, it seems to me, sorting out what is true and what is false. Um, and maybe they'll be less addicted. and Maybe that's the hope. Anyway, I've, I've got to believe that because what otherwise, you know, anyway, I, I, but meanwhile, uh, Facebook stock is down and that means that this particular poison is on its way to maybe passing a little bit. Well, I have a possibly completely uninformed take on all of this. I am, I'm watching the, uh, the Netflix series, uh, Inventing Anna about Anna Sorokin, you know, who, uh, yeah. this, this woman, this scam artist, you know, Anna Delvey, which I think is just such a a tale for our time of, uh, you know, whether you're talking about the fire festival or all of these other, you know, Theranos, just the, the rise of the scam artist. And it occurs to me watching this, that, you know, she and the fire festival and even Donald Trump are really in various ways, just reflections of, of social media. I mean, she basically is living an Instagram lifestyle and the people are attracted to this and they want to believe in it. And it's, it is the, it is kind of the triumph of sort of the fake imagery lifestyle over reality that we've gotten from Facebook, Instagram. And I just don't know what's next. I mean, I, I just have very little confidence that TikTok is going to be an upgrade, but you're right. We, we do adapt to, uh, to all of these things. And, uh, I certainly am not going to lament the loss of Facebook. Okay. One last question. 
you know, we have been playing the Lucy and the football thing for so long, so long that that's actually see now that analogy is actually pretty tired and worn out and dated, isn't it? I mean, yes. there's like a whole bunch of people are going, well, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, you old people. Um, we have a, a, a judge in New York ruling uh, that that Donald Trump and his children will have to testify in uh, the attorney general's case. Um Give me your sense of how real this is, how much attention we should pay to this, whether there's actually a possibility that something will come of this in contrast to what we've experienced over the last six years. Look, it does seem apparent that the Donald Trump business empire is littered with all kinds of of petty frauds. And I'm not the first person to marvel at this. You would think the person with all of these legal vulnerabilities, the last thing he needed was the bright glare of the presidency upon his business. And to the question of, is Donald Trump a conscious con artist or is he self-deluded above all? I mean, that his determination to seek publicity when you would think he needed the shadows is a suggestion that maybe there's some part of this that, that he doesn't really understand himself. But the American system of justice largely leaves alone the wealthy and powerful, but when it catches one of them, it really does tend to make examples of them. So whereas you know, poor people are, are caught up constantly in the toils of justice, richer people mostly escape, but when they're caught, the system really goes after them. And I, I wonder if that's, that's not the fate that Donald Trump is going to face. I, I, what, I don't know how satisfying this will be to anybody though, because he will be able to say many people in the real estate industry um, overstate the value of their holdings on some forms and understate the value of their holdings on other forms. Why are you singling me out? And he may not be completely wrong about that. And his supporters will will have uh, reason to be um, outraged because other more successful real estate people do the same or maybe even worse. And meanwhile, those who want to see some kind of justice in American society will say, what, you're the man tried to overthrow a presidential election, and and now he's in trouble for bank fraud. Well, I see. I think this is this is the point, the real danger that he. I mean, he has he has you know dangers on different levels. One being that uh, one of the scariest places for him to be will be under oath because he's such a chronic liar. And if he is held to the standard that many other people have been held to, that's problematic, right? Lying under oath. But I thought the larger question is is this belief somehow that because he was president, he is above the law, because he is wealthy and powerful, that the rules that would apply to you and to me and to your average businessman, your average schmuck schmo out there, we, we need to you know not apply to him. I think that's an issue of constitutional importance. But also, I'm just not sure how that plays out to say that he is doing things that if you did this or the guy down the street or your brother did this, they would go to jail, but we're supposed to look the other way. Mm-hmm. But I guess part of it, though, is that, that we have sort of internalized this new normal. And I, I keep bringing this up on the podcast. I mean, you go back to the Watergate era and think of all the people that were held accountable. Forty members of the Nixon administration were indicted uh, or jailed. The attorney general went to jail. The chief counsel went to jail. Uh, you know, the chief of staff went to jail. There was a culture back then and the legal mechanism to hold people accountable. And none of that's happening now. And I just kind of wonder whether or not people are going, yeah, that's a, you know, you are rich and powerful. You should be able to lie and defraud and cheat and bully and do all of these things that we know are illegal, but yeah, what are we going to do about it? Uh, let me offer maybe a, a slightly more hopeful way of Please. looking at it. Um, <laughs> I think hoping you would. One of the reasons the people in the Nixon administration got into so much trouble was it wasn't that back then the culture was stricter. The culture was way looser. Uh, 
Um, mm. You know, uh, that, and the political culture in particular was looser. I mean, uh, before before 1971, political contributions were given in cash. That was completely legal. No one had any idea who gave what to whom. Um, because of Vietnam and then because of the Watergate scandal, uh, the rules were tightened. And I, I think one of the reasons so many people around Nixon felt that they'd been treated unfairly was, well, I didn't do anything that different from what the Lyndon Johnson of the John F. Kennedy people did. Society's changing the rules. And after and I wrote about this in my history in the 70s, it wasn't just at, at the federal level. I mean, that that down all through the country, there were a series of prosecutions of state-level officials in New Jersey and Maryland. That's why Spiro Agnew went when Nixon's vice president uh was con- was prosecuted, not for anything he did as vice president, but for um receiving cont- illegal contributions um or bribes, I guess you'd call them, when he was governor of Maryland. The the rules changed in a way that became less permissive. And that rule change lasted for a generation. And then uh, the rules began to slacken again and become more permissive. And that that's that's the story of how Donald Trump was even possible. It was already true that campaign contributions were looser, that politicians could do more self-enrichment, that the, the puritanical uh, turn that American society took on political morality in the 1970s was being unturned. Mm-hmm. So we're now going to have a debate about whether we need to tighten the rules again. And uh, what what the legacy of the Trump era may be that, especially once Republicans no longer feel so directly accused, mm-hmm. uh, that there may be some opportunity for some political reforms that, that uh, say things that, that I mean, it, if no one has ever gotten around to writing the law that says the president can't lease, can't the president can't operate <laughs> a business and can't take payments from people with business before, the, if that is legal, um, it shouldn't be legal. The, the, the Trump Hotel should not have been allowed to exist. Um, and, uh, if we, if it was legal and we, uh, maybe it wasn't, but if it was, then that the rules need to be changed. So it never happens again. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was the wake up call because I, I, I can certainly remember from 2017 where I think it was, uh, uh, the issue of conflict of interest and Trump said, well, you know, there are no, uh, conflict of interest laws for the president of the United States. And I think a lot of us went, wait, no, you didn't realize really? We, yeah. we 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 had based so much of this on the honor system. So you're absolutely right. That that's long overdue. David Frum, thank you so much for oh, being so generous with your time. Appreciate it very, very much. And thank you all for listening to this weekend's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday. We'll do this all over again. <laughs>